Today's teaching text comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. Um, It is an honor to be here with you this morning. Um, Yeah, I I was talking with a friend last night, and she asked me if I was going to tell a joke. Um, And that does feel, in the sermons that I've seen and heard, and I'm sure the ones that you've seen and heard, that does seem to be sort of a standard part of a sermon. Um, Although I don't know that the book of Revelation necessarily is ripe for comedy, Um, but I did write a joke and I'm going to tell it to you just because I went through the effort of writing it and then we can talk about revelation. Um, here's a joke. (laughs) I think Caleb asked me to do this, at least in part, because he's tired of me preaching sermons just to him. Um, (laughs) now that's not true. It's purely a joke. Um, if, you know, if it resonates with Caleb, he can tell you down in the comments. Um, But yeah, that's my joke. And so let's talk about Revelation. Um, I thought it would be helpful as a starting point to just kind of take a step back and look at what uh, Revelation is. And I think the best place to start would be with Jesus. Um, We have talked about how Revelation is sort of the fifth gospel, uh, but I think that the reverse is also true. The Gospels are a revelation. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see the ultimate revelation. Uh, Jesus is a revelation of God, the Creator and Father. He is an embodiment of a God who before that time was unseen and somewhat unknown. And in the person of Jesus, God's character is revealed to us. Jesus says it in this term in these terms. No one knows the son except the father, and no one knows the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Uh, in the Gospel of John it says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. Um Jesus is also a revelation of God's plan to save humanity and to reunite us to himself. Um, Back in the garden, after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and God is in this moment of 
sort of handing out curses. Uh, He says to the snake, I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's a slow unfolding of this plan that God put in place in the garden after the fall. And there are 42 generations between Adam and Jesus during which there are glimpses and types and shadows, and they are all pointing to the coming of the Savior, and they all have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Jesus steps onto the scene. He defeats the law of sin and death by offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. He sends the Holy Spirit and reveals God's plan to make us his dwelling place. So Jesus was a revelation of God, and he was a revelation of God's plan to save us. Um, So if Jesus is our starting point for understanding what a revelation is, then I think there are a couple of helpful things that we can say in general about revelations. One, a revelation is ultimately a good thing. Uh, I think we can all agree that the gospel was good news. It was the clearest sign in all of history that God had not left humanity to its own devices, but that he was actively working out his purposes throughout human history. And despite our failure, despite our unfaithfulness, God intends to rescue and his purposes will not be thwarted. A revelation gives us a helpful, God-centered perspective. Um, in the fourth chapter of Revelation, uh, the voice that, that John has been communicating with the whole time says to him, come up here. And so there's this uh, physical representation of John literally being lifted to a higher plane so that he can really see and understand what's happening in the world, so that he can describe what's happening from God's point of view. In Isaiah, it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so there are many points in Scripture where we see different characters, different humans getting a glimpse into what God is actually up to. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones become an army. Jacob falls asleep and he sees angels descending and ascending from and to heaven and says, the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So a revelation allows us to come up here. It allows us to to see how God is working His purposes in our world. Um, and obviously, the ultimate example of that is Jesus coming to die for our sins and the good news being revealed to and preached by His disciples. A revelation can be challenging, and this is very evident in the life of Jesus. Um, we like to think of Him often as you know, kind of the lamb cuddling, kid blessing savior. Uh, But he said a lot of things uh, during his life that were very controversial. Um, He challenged our understanding of of familial connection. Um, This is a little piece from, from what he says to Matthew. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And this is a very controversial teaching in a society that was defined by familial connection and and tribalism. And these are not the things that we put on our Christmas cards. Um, a friend said that to me uh, because it's it's not as palatable as some of the things that we do put on our Christmas cards. Um, uh, there's another scene where Jesus is preaching and teaching and healing and they come to him and they say, hey, your mom's here <laughs> and she wants to talk to you. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father, that is my mother, that is my brother. And so he, throughout his life, gave some really challenging teachings. Um, he challenged our concept of king and kingdom. He was entering into a time where there was a full expectation that the Savior was going to come, that he was going to conquer through war because that is what they were used to, that he was going to put his enemies to death, but instead he laid down his life. And that was hard. That was a hard thing for his disciples to comprehend. It was hard for them to live through. Um, But that is a revelation. <laughs> that is us that is us being challenged by the revelation that was Jesus Christ. Um, lastly, a revelation also creates in us a passion and a longing for kingdom and home. Um, and I think we see this in the life of Jesus because he was so connected to his disciples. Um, they were devastated by his death. And I think in a way they were also very sad when he went away again after being resurrected. Um, But he points to a future where we are reunited. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So... Um, Paul also describes uh, in 2 Corinthians this this longing that we should have. Um, He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so, in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it creates in us this longing for home, this longing for reunification with our Savior. We, because He came here to be with us, we are able to put words to it. We are able to understand what that feeling is to be with our God, and we long for it. Um, So with that framework in mind, we can kind of explore the letter to the church at Sardis, and we can look for these things. We can look for 
the ultimate goodness of the revelation that was in the letter to the church in, at Sardis. We can look for uh, a challenge. We can look for uh, Jesus pointing us to the longing that we should have for reunification with our Savior. We can look for God's heavenly perspective on our current situation. Um, Sardis is maybe one of the harder letters to reckon with because there isn't really a commendation to the church. Jesus says, I know your works, but he doesn't describe anything complimentary about those works. The other churches, um, you know, get some nice things said about them, of about the work that they're doing. Um, but Jesus here, he just says, I know your works and you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And so we're getting this godly perspective on how the church is doing. Not great. Um, and we see the challenge of this revelation to the church at Sardis. And he's telling them that they need to wake up. He's telling them that they need to remember what they've seen and heard. And we also see at the end uh, a call to a longing for kingdom and home. He says, I will acknowledge you before my father. Um, so there's this description of the throne room. And it's so those things are easy to see. And I think what's easy to miss in the letter of the church to Sardis is God's goodness. Um, so I think what we need to understand is that the very act of discipline is loving. Um, so he is telling them that, that they have a problem. He's uh, correcting them. He's admonishing them. Um, and he's inviting them to do better. And just the fact of him doing that, just the fact of the writing of this letter and the delivering of this letter um, uh, through the angel to the church at Sardis is, is an act of love. Um, the KJV says, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, which is <laughs> a lot of Fs, but it is the version that I hear in my head. Um, but it's the message is the same, is that the Lord disciplines those who he loves. So Jesus starts this letter with describing himself as him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And this description is pulled from the first chapter of Revelation. John is having this vision of Jesus. Jesus' eyes are on fire. There's a sword coming out of his mouth, and he's standing among seven lampstands and holding seven stars. And... John freaks out, naturally, as one would, and Jesus says, it's okay, and he starts explaining to him what's about to happen and what he needs John to do. And he says this about the seven stars and the lampstands. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. N.T. Um, Wright uh extracts for us the the comfort that we should feel in the depiction of our Savior as holding these seven stars. He says, but the seven churches, uh, seven is the number of perfection, and the church is listed in verse 11, thus standing for all the churches in the world, all places and all times. The seven churches need to know that Jesus himself is standing in their midst and the angels who represent and look after each of them are held in his right hand. Um, 
the seven spirits. Uh, seven is a symbol for completeness. And so by announcing himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God, even before Jesus tells the church what the problem is, he's telling them where the answer is. He's telling them that completeness is found in him. So from the very first part of this letter, in just the description that Jesus offers of himself, holding the seven stars, having the seven spirits of God, he is offering himself and offering comfort to his church. The letter goes on to say that the church at Sardis has a reputation of being alive, but they are dead, and he tells them to wake up. Now, normally we don't tell dead things to wake up. Dead is dead. It is final, but with Jesus, nothing is final, not even death. Um, Jesus often uses a metaphor of falling asleep when he talks about death in the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, Lazarus is sick and he's dying, and he says to his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going there to wake him up. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell the story of a daughter who was— She was the daughter of of a ruler of a synagogue, and she was sick, and Jesus was delayed in getting to her, and he arrives, and they are already playing this mournful song, and he says to them, she is not dead, only asleep. And uh, the Gospel of Mark records the words that Jesus says to her when um, when he walks into the room. He says, Talitha Kumi, and Talitha is an affectionate term. It also means lamb. And so he essentially says to her very gently, little lamb, get up. So you have this admonition of being dead on the one hand, but there is also grace in him saying, wake up. Him saying, wake up is an indication that he does not believe that this is the final state of this church, that he does not intend to leave the church where they are, but is calling the church to resurrection, and he is the resurrection. Um, And I like to, when I imagine it, I like to think of the gentle Jesus that we see waking up the little girl. I imagine him gently touching us and calling us a term of endearment and just in the softest way telling us to wake up. Um, A couple of facts just about the church, the city of Sardis. Uh, It was a wealthy city. Um, It was in between uh, at, at a junction of several important roads and trade routes. There's some indication that they potentially invented money, that they were the first people to um, make coins out of metal and to use them to exchange for goods. Um, They were known for softness and luxury and apathy and immorality. Uh, Sardis also had a reputation of being impenetrable to attack. And that reputation, which was not accurate because the city did have vulnerabilities, uh, that reputation led them to stop adequately guarding their city. And they were overconfident and they left their city unguarded and they were conquered, not once, but twice. And so the message from Jesus in this letter is pretty simple. He's saying, you've rested on your your laurels. Um, They have given you a false sense of security. You have grown too comfortable. 
But he's also saying, you can't fall asleep here because your work is not finished. And I think the question for us as the church today is, have we gotten too comfortable here? Um, If you are like me, then you have a strong longing for comfort. Um, It's hard to describe how strong that impulse is in my life to to seek comfort, to seek things that are comforting. Um, And this past year, it has been almost impossible to get comfortable. Um, There has been a real, in a psychological sense, there has been a, a lot of sitting in discomfort for me and I'm sure for you as well. It has been a year of revelation. This pandemic has revealed and uncovered inequities in our healthcare system. It has revealed unimaginable pain that still exists because of the legacy of slavery and racism in this country. It has revealed deep divisions in the body of Christ. Um, In the fall, I I read Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise, which is a historical survey of the American church as it relates to race. Um, And it's hard to really describe what I felt reading that book. I think it was a deep grief that manifested itself um, physically. Uh, There were many days when I would read his words and would be so grieved by the state of the church uh, that I would just lay on the floor. And um, I started praying during that time um, just for Jesus to help us, for him to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand. There was just such a deep mourning for the state of the church and the things that we had let slip, that somehow the the church that was supposed to be the gospel, the church that was supposed to be good news for everyone, the church that was supposed to be uh, full of ministers of reconciliation, that we had been such an instrument of division and separation in this world. It was incredibly painful um, to realize that, to have that revelation. Um, and honestly, that's a lot of what the past year has been, uh, as, as these deep places of pain in our society have become uncovered. Um, there's just been a lot of mourning. Um, and because of that, I have never prayed more or harder. I've never cried more. I've never fasted more than I have in this past year. I've never been more desperate to meet God in worship. I have never repented more. I am more keenly aware than I ever was before of how easy it is to murder my brother or sister in my heart or with my tongue. And I feel like all of these revelations about our society, that those are God saying to us, wake up. You can't rest here. There is work to do. And it has been challenging and a real existential battle to not seek comfort. Um, And when I entered into this, this Lenten season, I was feeling pretty weary because of all of these things. And 
I remember on Ash Wednesday standing in the frozen tundra that was Prospect Park that morning. And I had the strongest sense that there would be more hard things to walk through in this season. And I started to cry. And my only thought was, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be awake for this part. But What I think God is saying to me and to you and to our church is that He is the one who holds the seven stars. He's the one who has the seven spirits. He is the only safe place. He is the only one that can bring comfort and completeness and wholeness. We have to look to Jesus. We have to pray and fast as if our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters depend on it. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be uncomfortable, but there's grace in that. There's God's goodness in that. And I don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss the ultimate goodness. I don't want to miss His godly perspective about what's happening in our world. I don't want to miss a challenge that spurs us to repentance and change. And I don't want to miss that all of this is because He loves us. Because He loves us, He will not stop telling us to wake up. Because He loves us, He will not stop giving us opportunities to repent and to change course. So if you are with me in this uncomfortable place, this place of of waking up to real pain and hardship in this world, if that's where you are, then I want to say I'm with you. I want to say that God is with you, and I want to say that there's work for us to do. And work may not look like what we think. Yes, this time is ripe with opportunity to push back against the things that are raising themselves up in opposition to the kingdom of God, and there are people to clothe and feed and love. But sometimes work is just holding on to your faith in the face of undeniable pain. Sometimes work is just persevering through suffering and not letting go of God's hand and getting to the other side and reaching back for your brother or your sister. James wrote, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So it's not going to be easy, but on the other side, God says, I will put you in a white robe. I'll put your name in my book and I'll acknowledge you before the throne. And that has been such an encouraging picture to me in writing this. Um, and just imagining standing in that in that room um, and, you know, our Lord and Savior is there. We are reunited with him. And he says, hey, dad, this is my friend, Jackie. So sisters and brothers, don't you want to hear your Savior say, well done? We've been reading um, this letter, as you know, to our church, and it is uh, the collective wisdom and hearing from God of, of some of our some of our friends and leaders in the church. And so I'd like to read this part to you now. To the church at Brooklyn, you have done good deeds. 
You have built something that wasn't there before. You have birthed a spiritual refuge, gathered to lift up my name and planted church homes that have served my people for years. You have brought many together and created a life-giving community. Yet I urge you to not forget your mission. Do not become too easily satisfied with what you have started when there is work unfinished. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Because of love, continue to receive my dreams for flourishing for all New Yorkers and work toward the renewal of all things. Imagine what heaven manifesting in Brooklyn might look like specifically. What does it look like on your block, at your workplace, in your family, with your neighbors? Release your skepticism and receive my longing. Hear my heart, for nothing is impossible with God. Together you are members of one body, each an important part of a beautiful whole. Go. And spread my love and know that I am with you always. May it be in Brooklyn as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are always with us. Lord, you are present throughout history. You have never left us. You have never abandoned us. And God, even when we are failing, even when we are unfaithful, you are still calling us to wake up. You are still calling us to our work. And God, there's so much grace in that. There's so much goodness in that. And so, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us ears today to hear your call. God, would we hear your voice? Would we hear you calling us by our name, the name that only you know, the name that you have prepared for us. God, would we hear your call as never before and would we be prompted to move and to act by the Spirit of God? Would we, would we be prompted to, to reach for our neighbors in ways that we haven't before? God, would we be prompted to lay everything down for the sake of love, including our own lives? God, would you make us less comfortable. God, would you open our eyes? Would you give us hearts that are understanding? Would you disrupt the things that we think and believe and challenge us to a new and higher plane? Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning and that there are new opportunities to love you and to serve you. And so, God, would you make our feet strong? Would you send us out with new courage and and renewed hearts and renewed minds? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.